0: Hi, I'm Devin Leary. And I'm Carolina Barlow. And we're here to tell you to dump him. Break up with your boyfriend. And we want you to listen to our podcast, True Romance, every week, where we talk about our love lives and the love lives of others. Please join our exes, who we know will also be listening. Like Kyle. Kyle, are you there? Hey, babe, how's life? No, you look good, though. Me? Oh, my God, stop. Please, I haven't even gotten a haircut in like three months. Okay, please help us pay for Carolina Psychiatrist bills by listening on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: I want you.
0: I'm Alex Iono, and I have a new podcast. Let's Get Into It is all about tackling the stuff you and I want to know. Each week, I'm joined by a friend and a wisdom tree, and we discuss everything you want to know about money, love, your relationships, even fitness and mental health. I love having deep conversations with my friends, and now it's your turn to get in on it. Listen to Alex Iono, Let's Get Into It, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We got married by a rabbi. And when we were visiting with the rabbi before we got married and, and having discussions, we told her story that I, I used to have this little, it was this little thing I wore around my neck and it said, don't postpone joy. And and I, I think I got it right when my wife and I started dating. And when she purchased my, my wedding ring, the ring I'm wearing now, it, it inscribed inside of it was don't postpone joy. And so... When we were talking to the rabbi, I guess my wife told her this, this you know, story and the meaning of it and why, why that was inside my, my ring, she just looked at us and said, just look inside your ring. And so we decided to go through with, with the wedding. Last week was a, uh, it was a really horrible week for America. I got married September 15th, 2001. Four days after 9-11. Thousands of our citizens lost lives. Thousands were hurt but thousands of our citizens rose to the occasion to help. And immediately I found myself on a cruise ship um, that was anchored near ground zero, working the midnight shift, feeding first responders. The nation sends its love and compassion God bless America! to everybody who is here. Thank you for your hard work. Thank you for making the
0: nation proud. And may God bless America.
1: It wasn't heroic. I did what I knew how to do. I did my, my part. I, I, I cooked. I really didn't think much about how that came about. Um, I just you know heard of that there was a need. I went down and signed up, and I ended up uh, running the kitchen from 12 o'clock at night till 8 o'clock in the morning and cooking food for the first responders. We had people who were also working in, I guess, the front of house, you know, cleaning, clearing tables and things like that. But they also spent time with with some of the responders, and they were pretty broken up by what they were seeing. So, you know, for that short period of time, we did provide, you know, some comfort. But out of our tears and sadness, we saw the best of America as well. We saw a great country rise up to help. Tens of millions of dollars and thousands of hours and tons of food and clothing—
0: have all been donated.
1: But, you know, looking back on it, it was such a slapstick response. We dealt with companies that were just, you know, donating food to us, and we had no idea what we were going to cook, but there were boxes of, like, branded, you know, rice and beans and things like that, and so it was was completely disorganized, and the only reason we made it work is because there were a bunch of professional chefs in there who just figured it out. And, And it was at least two weeks before we saw a real response to feeding people who were down there you know digging through the rubble that's just that's just you know looking back on it, it's just completely inadequate you know we we need we need a government with a plan. you know these hurricanes and these disasters are happening all too frequently. you know this isn't the last pandemic that we're gonna see, and so we we can't have a government in, in with an absence of policy relies on you know, Jose Andreas, you know, God bless him that he does this work, but we shouldn't have to rely on that. We, we shouldn't have to rely on his connections to wealthy people to help feed people who are in need. That's not, that's not the way a government should respond to disasters. And so for this episode, we're going to look at disaster relief and, and whether or not our, our government should have a plan. We're going to look at policies that, that we should have in place, uh, specifically the FEED Act, and how that, that can completely remake the way we deal with disaster relief. I, I think I think to understand that the need is you need to understand, you know, take a look at, at what it costs To move food around, what it costs to mobilize the amount of people, whether it's on in a large city or whether it's on an island nation, it it doesn't really matter. It's it's about this massive, massive um, response that has to happen. So um, the best person to I think take us through this is uh, Nate Mook, the CEO of World Central Kitchen. Jose gets uh, the glory out there, and and he should. But Nate Nate is the one who keeps the wheels turning. So we are going to speak to Nate to just. Get an understanding of the, the the size and scope and complexity of what has to happen to feed people who are in need in times of disaster.
0: Oh, my video froze. So we're uh,
1: in the middle of a pandemic.
0: Are you hearing me okay with the the headphones here?
1: Most of these interviews are done via Zoom or, or Squadcast, I should say. But yeah, that that you know, that social distancing thing is kind of happening now. So don't hear me okay? Yeah, great. We're gonna keep our distance and and make make a podcast. Okay, so, uh, Nate, uh, what what challenges are, are, are we seeing with, with the pandemic, sort of, a, 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 let's talk about the United States for a second, just a nationwide pandemic versus a, a localized disaster? What are the challenges you're seeing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's exactly right. I mean, this is very different from a natural disaster in the sense that typically you have everything focus into one area so you can really redirect you know all these resources gather up everything all these groups come in and they focus in and they sort of you know it's like uh you know you're you're sort of healing this one place where there's been damage done unfortunately now the damage is is everywhere um the damage can often be seen um, and it requires a really a completely different approach. Even if the underlying goal is the same, which is to get food to those that need it, the mechanisms in which you do that have to be adapted to the current situation. And what I mean by that is, um, an, an organization like World Central Kitchen, but even the federal government, um, you know, uh, can't be everywhere at the same time. And the pandemic is really impacting. The big cities like New York, but also you know small towns, um, rural areas. Uh, we're seeing places like Navajo Nation that actually have the highest rates of of COVID in the country right now. And so, if you can't be everywhere, then how do you how do you respond? Um, I think the other the other big piece is that because this is not a typical disaster, the mechanisms especially on the federal level that tend to get implemented in in disaster scenarios. uh, You know, nobody really knew what to do. Um, You know, was this an emergency where FEMA goes in and, and tries to do something? You know, what is what is the USDA's role? Because, you know, we're seeing all these food banks being overrun. And is USDA now a disaster response organization? So there was almost this like paralysis at the federal level of what to do. And so, you know, I think what's ended up happening, what we're seeing is that uh, nonprofits like World Central Kitchen, but also more importantly, local leaders. So the mayors, the, you know, the, the community-based organizations in the neighborhoods have really had to step up to fill the void. And the, the challenge with that is how do you sustain that over this period of time? You know, you can go in and very quickly activate and mobilize to do things, but how do you do that on a longer-term scale. Um, from the feeding side of things, one of our biggest challenges that we found is that it's the last mile that's the hardest part. How do you get the food into the hands of those that really need it? It's one thing to produce the food, and what we've seen right. is that, you know, the there's actually ample production available, right? I mean, the restaurants are closed down, so you've got, you know, the kitchens that are, that are dormant right now that could be activated. You have the suppliers that wanna sell food to, to somebody. But then how do you get that food in a way to get it to the people who can't either leave their house or they can't go to congregate feeding sites? And that's really proven to be the challenge. So it's required really this sort of, this complete reinvention of the way that, that World Central Kitchen operates. And also I think just a wake up call more generally to our society around the importance of local leadership and 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 not having to rely on somebody coming in from the outside to, to support and have all the answers.
1: Yeah. Well, uh... Wasn't that always the case with
0: the Stafford Act I and mean, the Stafford Act actually
1: uh, uh, put the, uh, uh, the the onus on local governments to to deal with uh, you know, disasters, um, which in, in sometimes is part of the problem because the federal dollars can't flow very well. But I mean, to me, I, you're, I think this is the point. You're making a really great point here. And I think it's the point that a lot of people miss. You can cook food. I, I mean, Jose can call any chef in the country and say, hey, your restaurant's closed right now. Open up. I'll give you X amount per meal. You can you know do five thousand meals a week, and we can feed a lot of people, and 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 that's great. But it's the logistics of finding those people. You now I work with an organization called Hungry, and they were actually doing that for the city of New York, um, working on that last not only logistics of finding the people, but delivering the food to them as well, and. Uh, my understanding is that the rates of you know finding the people and delivering that food, those meals, there's like a fifteen percent miss or, you know miss rate or error rate on that, which is you think about the amount of food that's being produced, fifteen percent of that not getting where it has to go to. that's a that's a big rate. so yeah, the, you're 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 pointing out something that most people don't understand that that logistics problem of not only delivering the food, uh, especially in a pandemic when things are shut down, but finding that person, especially in a city like New York, I mean, you may go to a, a housing project where, you know, you've got to go through hallways and knock on doors. And, and so it's, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a lot to do here. Um, so, um, you know, what Jose and I, obviously, you know, we've had several conversations around, you know, uh, world central kitchen starting to do, um, advocacy work, not only feeding people, but, you know, doing some policy work and, and it's always been, well, we're kind of working it out. <laughs> now you guys are actually doing that policy work. And it's great to see. Um, because you guys, um, helped, it sounds like help write the feed act. Um, yeah. which does exactly what we're talking about. It's actually getting those federal dollars immediately into, you know, you don't have to wait for FEMA to mobilize. You don't have to wait for, um, for dollars to start flowing, um, setting up, you know, the network is there. Um, I mean, you think about this, if, if the day one pandemic, everything starts to close federal dollars, start flowing to restaurants, those restaurants stay open. They all turn into community feeding centers. Not only do you feed a lot of people, but you keep that entire supply chain intact. So that milk that we see that's being thrown out and those chicken eggs that are being broken and the hogs that are not slaughtered all of these things stay intact now. Yeah. And so that that's not broken, and so it really lessens the effect of this pandemic, it lessens the effect that it has on hungry people, lessens the effect that it has on the economy. But you have to have a plan for this. So so what what is the plan? What
0: where, where where are we with the feed act right now? Yeah, it's it's a great point. I mean, I think again, this this goes back to the idea that um you know the the power should be in the hands of the local community to be able to respond. And I think I ideally, like you said, that is sort of the the general. Um, goal of the Stafford Act. The problem is that we were seeing in actuality, it runs into a number of barriers. And there's a couple of things that we really focused on with the FEED Act. So one of them is who can actually be providing those meals, you know, typically in, in an emergency and whether that... It, should, it, should, it, should, it shouldn't be a party planning company that has no experience with food, right? <laughs> exactly. It shouldn't be that. that. Exactly. We exactly. Right. I mean, if it's looked at as government procurement, what ends up happening is you end up with organizations that are just bidding on government contracts to make money, not organizations that really are there to feed people. We saw this fail dramatically in Puerto Rico. We've seen this fail so many times over the years, but it's the structure there that 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 leads to that problem. And so the idea here is we need to open the door. We need to authorize those dollars to be able to go to, businesses like restaurants and catering companies and those that are feeding people and know how to feed people at scale for a living. So that's one piece. The second piece is letting those dollars also flow into local farmers, right? There shouldn't be anything stopping a a city, a county, a state from buying directly from local farms to put together produce boxes, other things that can be put in the hands of, of those families, right? That So, and right now it's really tricky to do that. So those are two two key pieces, but I think one of the biggest ones, and what a lot of people don't realize about federal dollars is that there's something called cost share. And what this means is that the federal government will say, okay, we're going to, we're going to pay 75% of this, but 25% is on you, the state or the city or the county to cover that cost and you know on the surface that seems like okay that's pretty good the federal government's going to cover 75% but the reality is what this what happens is this really disincentivizes um especially lower income cities Uh, places that are harder hit by the economic effects, especially this pandemic that just don't have the budgets to do it. So, yeah, you might have a place like Silicon Valley in California, Santa Clara County that says, oh, yeah, we've got the we've got Google here. We've got the budgets. We have all this tax money we can pay to feed our citizens. And then not very far away in Stockton, California, they say we don't have the money to do this we can't afford that 25% cost share so we're not going to feed anyone and so really this has proven to be a big barrier in this pandemic where you have it's it's you're incentivizing places that are already wealthy to provide food for their citizens and disincentivizing those areas that are already economically disadvantaged and so that needs to change and so what we're trying to do is amend the Stafford Act to say the federal government during times of national emergency or there's an emergency disaster declaration, the federal government should be willing to pay that 100 percent and not stop people from from getting access to the food that they need. And so we're hopeful. So the the bill was introduced with bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate. Um, it, the language in the feed act was then incorporated into the heroes act, which was passed by speaker Pelosi with the, um, on the house and is now sitting in the Senate. Now we, we know that, that, uh, that majority, yeah, we all people, good bills go to die, ex- exactly. like the graveyard of anything good. <laughs> we know that it is not going to survive as is, but we're hopeful that by continuing to push the feed act in a bipartisan way in the Senate, that some of that, that language could, could survive. And we're, we're hopeful because. You know, we're seeing in both parties. We're seeing how food should be. You know, access to food should not be a political issue, right? We should not be fighting each other around a battle like this when it's good for for all of America. It's good for the red states, the blue states, the the purple states. And so we're going to keep pushing it. Um, we're hopeful that when the Senate sort of reconvenes on the next steps of this issue in June, we can. Get, I mean, in July, uh, we can continue to push for it. So. So that's the goal, you know. I think, like you said, I mean, World Central Kitchen, we've, um, you know, we we we've been wanting to, you know, to get involved and and push some of these initiatives forward. But this was something where it was just it was very clear cut with the work that we're doing, and and we're hopeful that we can bring about some lasting change. This is not pandemic only. This can be something that can really survive and and live on. Yeah. Well, you know what I, what I'm hoping, um, because
1: for uh, the time that I spent working uh, on on issues uh, with Congress, is that you know they're they're not leaders in terms of you know. They're not going to stick their neck out and do something that, you know, will give someone an opening when it comes to election time. And so when we see the lines of, uh, uh, you know, people that are waiting two, three hours, mile long lines, uh, waiting for food banks to get some food for the families. And these these are people who, you know, three months ago would have never thought in a million years that they would be on a a bread line in their car. Um, And so, you know, I'm hoping that, that, There'll, there'll be a, a more empathetic sort of country who isn't going to look at people in need and say, "Well, you, you made your own bed, lie in it," or you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and you know, all of the, the, the rhetoric that we, that we typically hear. Um, are, are you know on, on the ground? Are you seeing people who were clearly middle class or even upper middle class who are now waiting in those lines who who, who may have a different opinion of the work that you're doing?
0: or may have a, a uh, a, a greater sense of empathy for for people who are struggling? We have. yeah. And I think exactly like you said, I mean, what we're seeing now in this country is we've had a health crisis that has uh, migrated to an economic crisis that really now is a humanitarian crisis. I mean, you go out to the Bronx, you go out to Queens. um, you know, you will see families waiting in line seven, eight, nine hours to get a box of food or, you know, food to take home. Um, these are folks that were hardworking. Uh, individuals that were, you know, were doing their best and now really are, have been left out in the cold. I mean, we, we have, uh, you know, 40 plus million Americans out of work right now. That is not going to change right away. Um, And I think there's a bit of a fallacy, right? I mean, even in the restaurant industry right now around reopening restaurants, right? There's a sense, oh, things are going to get back. It's not, I mean, it's, we're not through this and we need to recognize that. And, and I hope that, that more folks are going to be realizing that, and and put the resources and step up to the plate to be able to support our communities. To, so we we don't see this. I mean, the 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 amount of time that we don't respond as needed is simply going to drag out our ability to to get back to any semblance of normal. So Nate, you you, you
1: mentioned I think Harlem and the Bronx, uh, you know, cities, big cities. But how how much work are you guys doing out in rural areas? Because Again, my understanding that rural areas are getting hurt hit as as hard as 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 urban areas. Um, uh, people are struggling, and, and be, because of the, the the distance that you know, there's a lot more space. Um, yeah.
0: That that there's there's issues with transportation to get food as well. How, how much work are you guys doing out in, in rural areas? Yeah, so we're doing quite a bit, and we're trying to we're always trying to identify and expand ways to do more. Um, you know, I think one of the, the, the real centerpieces of our model to activate restaurants to produce meals that can go out into the community. So World Central Kitchen is paying restaurants um, generally around $10 a meal. And, the, and those meals can be distributed into the local communities, areas of need. Um, you know, World Central Kitchen can't be everywhere. We're a small NGO, we can be in a number of places, um, but restaurants are everywhere already. And so it's just common sense, right, to activate those restaurants. So we're now active, um, I think, today alone, 218 cities and towns we're serving meals in and getting meals out to so we can reach those places. Um, and we're also specifically targeting some some areas that are really hard hardest hit by COVID. So in Arizona and New Mexico, um, Navajo Nation, the reservation there has been uh, per capita one of the hardest hits, um, you know, have intergenerational families living together, you have about eight grocery stores for this massive geographical area. um, And it's very difficult to get food to families and also be able to support them to keep them isolated. So we've actually had to adapt our model um, in, in Arizona, New Mexico, to focus more on kits of food. So we went to households, we said, you know, what types of food? What are you what can you cook? What what do you want? fresh produce, um, you know, what types of, of rice and beans and other ingredients to be able to prepare meals. And we've been putting together these food boxes um, that can produce about 100 meals, 80 to 100 meals per box. And then that way we're able to go out and deliver those to, to much more remote rural areas where, place where, where families can't get to food banks, where families don't have access to prepared meals. So that's sort of a, you know, a way that we've been adapting the model. We've also been working very heavily in Central California with a lot of the farm workers um, there, working with the United Farm Workers Foundation. So, you know, everywhere's a little bit different. And I think, again, that's why you have to evolve and adapt and be able to work um, and understand what those local needs of the community is. But uh, for us, really, that's listening. Um, but you're right. I mean, that is, I think, moving forward over the next, uh, you know, eight weeks, the coming months, it's going to be how do we make sure that we can support those those areas that are much harder to reach than than our big cities, right? Yeah, I th- you just touched on something that I think is also you know really important. and that
1: is, if the feeding is spread out through restaurants, um, you have a much better chance of providing culturally appropriate and you know other people with dietary restrictions. Uh, you can actually reach more people that way too, uh, because it's not where you know you're only doing one particular thing. And so you can have restaurants that serve halal food in their, halal food in their communities, or kosher food, or, or vegan food, um, people that have different tastes, whether it's Caribbean or, or African or um, you know, what, what have you. And
0: so so you have a much better chance of, of actually incl- I mean, being much more inclusive with the meals that you're bearing. We kind of work to provide some guidance around what types of meals are going to work well for our purposes. So you, know, you have to have meals that... Um, Oftentimes we, we will prepare meals that can also be like flash chilled and then um, uh, reheated later, so uh, they can be delivered to families. Sometimes they're delivered hot, but sometimes you might be delivering a couple meals or a bunch of meals to a family that are going to cook later. So, mm-hmm. you know, some guidance around that. But you know, what's what's really been amazing, and I think always the strength of chefs in general and restaurants is. They know their stuff and so provide a little bit of feedback, a little bit of guidance and they're, you know, they kind of figure things out and we really want them to be able to do what they normally do best. And a lot of the restaurants we're working with are also open in some capacity. They might be doing takeout, they might be doing some delivery food as well. You know, we're not going in to supplement all of their business. We're trying to be a little bit of reliable income to them so they can bring back some you know, some back of house staff, some some cook staff. Um, but we're obviously not going to replace their entire business. So a lot of them are also doing what they normally do. So we have to kind of slot into that a little bit as well. So we we provide, you know, a little bit of guidance. But what we found is that restaurants have really, you know, risen to the challenge overall. I mean, they're, these chefs are creative, they're figuring things out, they're adapting their models a bit, they're trying to, you know, work in this sort of post COVID world. And that's really what we've 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 seen has been working best. We want them to also continue to buy from their existing suppliers, because as you mm-hmm. mentioned, you know every dollar that we put into a restaurant, that we pay a restaurant for a meal, is going to go to the food costs, of course, going to go to the labor costs. It's going to go to the suppliers that are providing that food it's going to go to the farm that's providing the food to the the distributor and there's all this trickle down effect i think in in the restaurant industry that a lot of people don't realize you know on the surface and again i think that's why it is so important for us to be able to support and uplift those local businesses so in in those communities we can we can pay a neighborhood place a neighborhood spot that can produce those meals and and really, you know, see that benefit. Um, you know, stay and that those dollars stay within that community rather than going to like a big government contractor.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and and those, there's usually a multiplier effect of about a dollar seventy five for every dollar that goes out. So it is great for the economy, um, which is the argument that you, know, you always try to make with the with the government that exactly. if you want to stimulate the economy, yeah, restaurants are a good way to do that. Um, Definitely. So, you guys have been at this, I guess, for about three months now since the pandemic started.
0: Yeah, we have. So, yeah, we've been serving now for uh, for three months here uh, in the United States, Um, and then even before then, we actually um, in February we were out in Japan working uh, with the cruise ship uh, in in Yokohama that had been quarantined. So we were we were having to adapt and learn some new systems around food preparation and 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 pre prep and reheating and other things, and so getting those systems really honed. Um, but yeah, in the United States and, and we've also been working in Spain as well. Spain was, was really hard hit, um, after Italy, um, before the United States really took up the mantle as being the worst in the world in terms of our COVID response. Um, but USA, USA, exactly. So we've (laughs) served, um, about 15 million meals, fresh meals. Um, these are not, you know, shelf stable. These are freshly prepared meals, 15 million meals. Um, since that time we've already put, um, we're we're nearing $50 million that we've put directly back into the hands of small restaurants through this process, paying them to prepare meals. So, you know, I I don't think any of us uh, at World Central Kitchen and uh, and, and, and otherwise really, I think um, when we started doing this work, really appreciated the scale of the need and what we're seeing. And, um, you know, we're producing close to 300,000 meals every single day all across the country. Some of that is uh, we've got some some kitchens um that world central kitchen is is overseeing. But most of this work now is through the local restaurants. and and that's right. really we want to prove show that this model works. and not only for the pandemic. I mean, I think what's been what's potentially really, uh, you know, if there is a silver lining, it's hard to say that, you know, with what we're facing right now, but, you know, maybe just maybe we'll see some lasting change where, The federal government, our cities, our states see the value of restaurants, not just culturally, not just economically, but also as first responders in our communities. Yes, absolutely.
1: I love wine, and there is so much of it out there. That's why I love Wine Access. Wine Access has the wine industry's most decorated team, including a master of wine, a master sommelier, and a serious crew of certified psalms and wine journalists. Finding Great Wine is all about access, and the team has spent decades rubbing shoulders with the legends and under-the-radar winemakers who have defined their very genres. That incredible micro-production burgundy that only Michelin-starred restaurants can get their hands on? Well, Wine Access probably has it. And they're all about connecting people and place through wine, which I love. And they've got the inside line on everything from Napa icons to rare Sicilian treasures. Better yet, The Wine Access Perfect Providence Guarantee ensures that if anything fails to impress, you get credit. No questions asked. Just head to wineaccess.com forward slash citizen to get $20 off your first $50 or more order. Remember, wineaccess.com slash citizen. SoftRip
0: Radio is a special operations military-grade podcast hosted by a team of combat-hardened veterans. We're an unbiased
1: source for frontline military news and behind the scenes war stories from America's
0: living legends. We've interviewed the infamous SEAL Team Six. You always treat the dogs with respect. Skilled snipers. So we went there to secure the facility and enable these individuals to do their job and maintain this hospital.
1: Clandestine operatives. I had a bullet in my skull. And so many more. So stay smart. Stay sharp.
0: Soft Rep Radio, the everyday carry podcast. Listen to Soft Rep Radio every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're back. So I'm here with uh, Nate Mook, who's the CEO of World Central Kitchen, and they have been just beating the drum on having a government response, not so much a, a charitable response. What, what does it take to get food on someone's plate in a disaster? What does it actually look like? And, and how do we get here? I've always said that, right? Restaurants and chefs, we are first responders. And it used to be that we were always there to sort of help with the charitable response. and But but now, the work that you're doing, it's just more directly. And then, of course, the extending... Extending that through so many chefs and restaurants across the country, um, it's been really impressive. Ha- any idea uh, uh, on how
0: much longer you'll you'll be need to do this through this pandemic? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's one that that we're facing sort of constantly of of what is what is the ongoing need looking like? We're always sort of adapting. Um, I think you know as as focus and attention is shifted from the health consequences of of COVID to the social justice issues that we're seeing now across the country. You know, my hope is we don't disconnect the two because the reality is that they are integrated, right? Well, are, connect, yeah, connect, connect them for us. Yeah. So, I mean, we have we have populations now. We, we have we have communities that have been out of work for now three plus months. Um, there's there's very little hope in in a lot of places in our country right now. There are neighborhoods, there are big cities that have you know essentially been abandoned by leadership and and support and. I think you, you've got all of this frustration and lack of hope and lack of, of, of a, of a future, um, that has been bubbling up. And on top of that, you have the, you know, the, the murder of, of a man in police custody that has kind of boiled everything over and we're, you know, we're seeing the, the reaction to this. Um, but I think it's all interconnected. It's all, if, if families... Are struggling to put food on their table, and they are frustrated. They are out of work. There's no hope and opportunity. Um, you know that that is going to lead to unrest, right? Because there there is there is nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And so, I, I think we have to be willing to invest. In it. We have to we have to you know provide the reforms that are that are so desperately needed in our criminal justice system and in our police uh, in our pol- policing, but we also need to tie very closely with that, the support for those communities, get, figure out how we can get jobs back in see how we can, we can divert, uh, attention and, and resources and money into these communities that so desperately need it right now and make sure that there is access to food. There is access right. to, to those, you know, those day-to-day things that are needed. So, yes, yeah. I mean, this, you're right. This, this is about, you know, creating those economic opportunities. I mean, I mean, people It's kind of,
1: Slides by you know too too frequently. George Floyd was arrested for passing a counterfeit twenty dollar bill. Well, he was arrested for passing a twenty dollar counterfeit bill because he was trying to feed feed himself. Yeah, I mean you know yeah. this wasn't a this wasn't about doing some nefarious thing where I am you know, going out there and you know you know becoming a master criminal. He was just trying to like you know survive. Yeah, and and uh, you know. This is about creating economic, you know, uh, you know, opportunity, and and this again, I'm I'm hoping is another, um, sort of silver lining of of in a, in a post COVID world is, is uh, realizing how fragile so many people and how they're living on the edge, and and how do, you know this big business, you know, what role do they have to play, and stop looking at these quarterly, you know. Uh, earning reports where if you miss your earnings by a couple pennies, you get hammered. And so the only way to to, to make up those dollars is, is through labor and labor is just getting crushed. And so, you know, hopefully on the other side of this, again, this is, goes goes back to uh, having a more empathetic country, is that, you know, leaders of business leaders, the Jamie Diamonds of the world are, are going to turn around and go, you know what, this is wrong and and something has to change or something has to give. And we're going to see unrest uh, for a long time and i think i think covid um you know it's it's uh it's underlined you know fragility in our healthcare system in our in our food systems um in 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 uh you know the economic opportunities that people have in communities and it's just exposed so many things um absolutely and uh you know hopefully in a post covid world um if there's another disaster whether it's local or whether it's national, that funding flows, people immediately can can get to work. Uh, you get through all the red tape, and people don't have to wait a week or two before they get that first meal. Immediately, it'll start happening. So absolutely. Um, so Nate, listen. I just want to say thank you for. The work that you're doing, This is uh, we're talking to Nate Mook, who is the man behind the man, <laughs> the, 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 the saint, um, Jose Andres. I, I know as the chef owner of my restaurant, I get all the glory, but it's people like you who are behind us, who are making the wheels turn, uh, that, that make it happen. So, so thank you for the work that you're doing, Nate. Thanks so um, much, Tom. Appreciate- so listen, we all know that disasters are inevitable. So government should have a plan, but we find out they don't. And in the absence of a plan, we have to rely on charity. But often, that just falls short. You know, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast and the Feed Act hasn't passed yet, call your representative and let them know that, you know what, can drives are really cool, but we need a plan. And the Feed Act is that plan. So can you get behind it? Can you co-sponsor it? You're like, let's pass this. Special thanks to Nate Mook, the CEO of World Central Kitchen, Citizen Chef with me, Tom Colicchio, is a production of iHeartMedia. Christopher Hasiotis is our executive producer. Jesslyn Shield is our researcher. And Gabrielle Collins is our producer and editor. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like us, rate us. If you don't like us, well, don't. Next, we'll examine how our governments respond with food aid in localized catastrophes like we saw in New York City after 9-11, and of course, in global emergencies like the COVID virus.
0: I'm Alex Iono, and I have a new podcast. Let's Get Into It is all about tackling the stuff you and I want to know. Each week, I'm joined by a friend and a wisdom tree, and we discuss everything you want to know about money, love, your relationships, even fitness and mental health. I love having deep conversations with my friends, and now it's your turn to get in on it. Listen to Alex Iono, Let's Get Into It, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.